Welcome to Appointed. So, this is part two of the interview with uh, Professor Deborah Parks from the University of British Columbia, Faculty of Law. And uh, what we want to, t uh, and I come to you from the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek on the shores of the beautiful Kitchissippi. I want to pick up on some things that we talked about in the last podcast where we were talking about uh, mandatory sentences in particular and deterrence and sentencing principles. And let's pick up on a bit of where we could be going and what we know right now in terms of the research you've been doing, what we should be looking at, what are some other ways that we could be addressing these issues? I think of, you know, the number of people serving long sentences and, you know, some with dementia who are being put into long-term care, don't even know, but they're still accountable to parole officers, people trying to get ahead. Um, what are some of the other issues that we should be thinking about that aren't even part of the legislative schemes that we're working on at the moment? Over to you, Professor Parks. Yeah, particularly for people uh, serving life sentences. I think when we when we talk about those life sentences, and often even in the media, it's um, if someone is sentenced, and it's it's often for murder because it's a, it's the mandatory sentence there. They'll say, you know, this person got a life sentence with. 10 years parole ineligibility, or they'll say they got um, a 10 year sentence sometimes is actually wrong. Um, but the point is, everyone focuses on this parole eligibility period. And, um, and that that's, you know, somehow the person is then done their sentence at that point. But nothing could be further from the truth, because that's only the period at which they become eligible to apply for parole. Research that I've uh, done with um, my colleagues Jane Sprott at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University and Isabel Grant uh, here with me at uh, UBC, we found that for one, in, with life sentences, judges are setting the parole eligibility periods ever higher as the decades have gone on since we brought in this regime in 1976 to now, people are getting much longer parole and eligibility periods now than they used to. So very few people are getting 10 years. So that's a bit of a myth in and of itself that people get out at 10 years. They simply do not. In the first decade and a half after 1976, I'm just going to give these stats that we found because I think it sets context to what we should be doing. In the first decade and a half after 1976, half of people who were convicted of murder got the minimum 10-year parole and eligibility period. Now it's only 20%. So it's a, it's a really small minority of people who are getting uh, that 10-year parole and eligibility period. Everybody is getting more than that. This is where the judges have discretion for second-degree murder to set it between 10 and 25. And then at the, at the end of, so when they're eligible, again, there's an assumption that people will get out at that time. And what we found on that part of the sentence too is that lifers are increasingly spending more time in prison well past their eligibility date than they used to. It used to be, again, looking back in the early decades after the uh, the uh, regime was brought in in the, the 80s and 90s, it used to be 42% of people were released within a year of their eligibility date. Now it's down to 15%, right? And so this is important for us to understand. We we have a sy system of, and I'm, I'm crediting someone I know who's, who's who living these experiences and who has um, written about it. She calls it perpetual punishment. It really is a system where we have decided as a society that we're going to be, because someone did 
um, something or at least was convicted of, and some of these people are innocent, but um, was convicted of, of, of something that is the most serious crime um, in our law, that we're going we're gonna to basically not give them any more uh, of our regard. We're going to impose punishment on them. We're going to make it very difficult for them to both get parole when they're in prison. And this, there's well-documented in the Senate report and elsewhere um, of the difficulty that um, people have, particularly Indigenous people, particularly racialized um, women, men, trans and non-binary people who are in prison, um, difficulty getting parole because they can't get the programs that get assigned to them. Whether they need them or not, they get assigned to them as having be required for their parole. They um, get labeled as difficult to manage and they don't get their parole for that reason. They have any number of of difficulties in actually convincing the parole board to release them or even to go up. Many people waive their rights to parole because they don't have the support of corrections. That's another thing that's that's well documented. Um, our current correctional investigator many years ago did a study, and it's still, I think, valid. We should update it. But that um, unless you had the explicit support of corrections, you do not get parole. It's less than 10% of people, or maybe it's less than 5% of people get parole when the corrections officers are not mm-hmm. sit, not fully supporting that. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons, again, well-documented, the Globe and Mail, in other, other um, research about the systemic racism that um, Indigenous, Black, and other racialized um, people who are incarcerated face, and the more likely they are to go well past their parole and eligibility. So I'm just, I'm just putting that in context to say we have this huge... Um, hardening of our system and this increasing the punishment um, on people ser- serving life sentences for really no no demonstrated um, benefit and in fact a lot of harm um, and uh, and we've gone we've gone kind of backwards in that way we're now keeping people in much longer than we used to um, and it was already harsh at the beginning so when people get out this is the other thing people um, I think maybe who haven't maybe met someone. Who's, who's living this experience, we think that, okay, they're out on parole now. They're kind of, that's it. Nothing, again, could be further from the truth. People are under very significant conditions. Um, imagine, again, someone who goes in as a 17-year-old on a life sentence. Um, they um, were convicted of murder as a party to an offense with others. Um, they that they actually didn't have any addictions at that stage in their life. They were a young person that got into trouble and did did something, you know, was convicted of doing something that's, that was, um, you know, obviously horrific. They then became addicted to substances, to drugs when they were inside. Um, And then as a condition of their parole, even though they weren't using by the time at all, by the time they were, um, came up for parole, um, they didn't get it. They then finally got parole about 15 years um, after they were um, sentenced. And now they have a condition that they can never drink alcohol at all that they can never um, be in the company of people who have, um, you know, who, who have criminal records, essentially. They can't go to a, a whole bunch of places. They have strict curfews. And imagine that you make a mistake and you, you're, you're, you have a beer and you're now back in prison. That you, you will be revoked for that. You will be back in prison for you know, many years before you can actually get yourself back before the parole board. Another thing that the Harper government did during their time in power was lengthen the period of time for which you, after you'd been um, revoked before you could go um, up for parole again, which again, just needlessly warehouses people. 
So there's all these ways in which um, we make it very difficult for people to reintegrate. Um, we put all kinds of geographic restraints, very small geographic area that someone can go um, when they're on parole without needing to get a very difficult to, to, to uh, accomplish dispensation to, to, to go elsewhere. They're, they might be going to school. They might be wanting to visit family. These, these things that we take for granted. People under parole are, are under those kinds of conditions for, for many, many years. And, and they are always, if they're a life, sent, uh, a life sentence, um, person living under a life sentence, they're always under that sentence. And that means when they get to be 50, 60, 70 years old, and they may have, uh, you know, need for, uh, you know, assisted living or long-term care, they're under parole and they have reporting requirements, as you're saying. And also there's difficulty even getting into, you know, some of these, um, getting a place, getting a bed when you are, uh, even though this is someone who's been living safely in the community for some time. And the other thing, just again, about people who have been convicted of murder is another Something that, that we want to we want to understand again, based on the evidence, is that people who are convicted of murder are very unlikely to commit any uh, violent offense again. Very unlikely, um, and this is by um, parole the parole board's own um, evidence. So people who get parole, these people are deter are deemed to be not. A significant risk at all. Um, and it's hard work to get to that point for all the kinds of difficulties of gaining parole in the first place. And then we now put all kinds of barriers in their way to reintegrating um, and to, you know, volunteering at their kids' schools or, you know, doing any of those things. And and so uh, it's it's perpetual punishment. I think we need to kind of face up to that and and think about how we can change that. I think there are some ways we could we could study and and get a better understanding of the conditions that are being imposed. That's the an, another research project that I'm going to be starting on, is to um, is to look at that and to look at the, the kinds of things that people are revoked for. Because I think a lot of people would be surprised. There's incredible discretion given to uh, parole officers to to revoke people and to send them back to prison. But uh, yeah, the, so there's there's lots of reforms I think needed there. But the starting point is that we're imposing this life sentence in the first place, and then we are. We're, we're putting this person under perpetual punishment. Right. And one of the things that some people may be thinking as they're listening to this is, yeah, yeah, but we'll be thinking of the cases where someone was out on parole and did something. And I think I want to bring us back to something you raised in our previous podcast, which was the whole issue of toxic masculinity and violence against women in particular. And the fact that not taking that seriously is something that's endemic. That's a problem within policing, within corrections, within the military, uh, within society writ large. And so, so um, the fact that I'm really glad you're looking at the conditions for parole uh, for parole supervision, because as you know, um, some years back, I put in an access to information request to find out how many men and how, versus how many women had uh, the the issue of relationships. Had, they had to report their relationships to parole officers. It was off the charts for women um, and negligible in some cases for men, yet the majority of those who pose a risk in relationship situations are not the women who have defended themselves 
rules against abusive partners, but the men who have committed misogynist violence. And so there are some real discrepancies there in terms of how how the system sees women who step out of stereotypically feminine roles and versus men who perpetuate uh, toxic masculinity, if you will. And so I think that I'm very much looking forward to that research. Your research recently, the, uh, the, the research you mentioned was mentioned by the Supreme Court of Canada in the case of Bissonnette as part of the exemplar, if you will, of how we need to be looking at uh, sentencing provisions in this country and how uh, they can be perpetually punishing, even though we say that we believe in rehabilitation. When we talk about life sentences in particular, it flies in the face of a belief that um, even though we know that the majority of folks don't pose a risk to public safety, there's an ongoing idea that they do. I'd like to talk also about a remedy that is very rarely used, um, that could be used right now. I mean, because there's lots of other remedies you and I would both like to see in the system, including ones like the one we're suggesting in Bill S. 230 to allow people to go back to court in cases where the way they're treated by corrections amounts to correctional interference with a lawful sentence when they impose more punishment by the conditions of confinement, by lack of access to programs, by excessive, uh, you know, over classification as higher security, all of those things. But we already have right now provisions for the royal prerogative of mercy, huge huge discretion on the part of the government through the governor general to um, to basically effectively release people from these conditions. How often is it used? In what context do we see it used? What do you think we should be doing, if anything, about that? It's um, based on my understanding of it, it hasn't been used that much. And I think it's, it's quite underutilized. And when you have, uh, when you have a a sentence like like this, like life, which um, as as it stands right now, there is no um, way of getting out from under it. And that's something I think we should talk about too. Is um, that there we should we should look at, and the government should look at this. And this is something again for the law commission and for for reform is is to um, is to have a, a a period of time under after which someone could get out from under a life sentence. Um, what is served? What is the public interest in keeping someone who is elderly, who is um, absolutely not a danger to anyone, uh, having the uh, public resources spent on their supervision. And if they breach a condition, and it doesn't have to be putting anyone in danger, and it often is not, and the vast majority are just simple breaches of conditions, putting that person back into prison, what is that served? Um, we should look at, at ways if someone has been living you know, um, safely in the community to, to have them uh, be released from those sentences and have those sentences commuted. But, but, the, but the existing measure of the Royal Prerogative of Mercy is meant to be there as a safety valve in the system, right? It's a longstanding you know, it's 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 about mercy. You look at the U.S. Uh, there are these days um, significant mass commutation uh, campaigns. I think this is an area for civil society here, for people who care about this issue, to look at advocating for the royal prerogative of mercy to be to be used. I know you've been working on this with the twelve um, Indigenous women um, as as one example. We need more of that kind of. You might say it's creative use, but it's certainly, um, you know, within the within the scope of the provision to have it be used to 
to undo an injustice, to have someone be released from a sentence that is no longer necessary. Um, the idea of mercy is kind of, um, you know, a, a, it's an interesting idea. Um, and, you know, for those who, who don't know about Brian Stevenson, who is a you know, a, a wonderful um, lawyer and, and and an advocate in the U.S. He talks about talks about mercy and talks about the need for um, a just kind of mercy to be to be um, to be used. And and honestly, in in the case of so many Indigenous people who were living under life sentences, others who who were sentenced as young people, um, many who were even sentenced as adults, many many women I know who are living under these sentences and having very a difficult time doing, uh, you know, going to university and, uh, and and getting out from from under these conditions, um, and or if they've been living safely in the community for a long time, still having to um, to deal with that. These are these are are the um, the kinds of cases that we should be thinking about, as well as those who are still many who are still inside who are not getting. Um, parole and uh and and thinking about using much more creative measures and 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 that's something that I've learned from you Kim over the years is to is to to really think about what are the possibilities within the existing you know legal mechanisms that we have to make to to make good on the promises that they provide so something like a royal prerogative of mercy we ought to be invoking that more there is um need for much uh just mercy in our system and thank you for that and and ditto to you but i think one of the one of the things just for those of you listening who may not know any privy councillor can recommend that people the uh, royal prerogative of mercy be applied and i know there were there was a campaign during the early part of the pandemic to use it to get people out of prison who were incarcerated and who were being put at risk health wise because of whether it was they were part of a particularly vulnerable health-wise population or because they were close to release or they'd already been granted parole and weren't being released. But we could be using it in a much more robust way. So anybody who's a privy councillor out there who's listening is interested in doing this, give me a shout and we'll start working on a campaign to uh, try and achieve some some justice for some of the folks who are not experiencing. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us on two sessions um, now, well, more than two, because we've had you on before as well. But uh, thank you for joining us on Appointed. I look forward to continuing to follow your amazing career and uh, also those of uh, the incredible students that you mentor. So thank you so much, uh, Professor Parks, for joining us. And we look forward to uh, future. uh, And to our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, our community of listeners uh, for all the work you do and uh, the efforts you undertake and the support you provide. Thank you, Senator Pate, for all you're doing. It's great to be here.